I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're starting out a new series this morning. We're going to go all the way through this book. We're actually going to move through the book in a pretty good clip. Uh, it takes somewhat larger chunks, and that will still take us through next spring, next Easter. So, we'll be here for a bit. There's a lot in here. I've been excited to get into it. I was excited to hear this morning about Can Can Connect. What a wonderful thing you are doing, a wonderful ministry. I didn't know anything about it before, but I'm, I'm enthused. And thank you, Tiffany, for sharing with us about that. I'm going to read just the first nine verses, and that's all we'll cover this morning. And that'll be enough. 1 Corinthians 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do you start a hard conversation? If you're a person who doesn't like confrontation, which is most of us, that can be a difficult thing. So starting hard conversations is preceded by a lot of uh, butterflies in the stomach and maybe prayer. As you work up the nerve to have that difficult conversation. If you're a workplace you in any kind of leadership, you know you have to get good at hard conversations. That is innate to leading and managing people. So it's something you have to at least get comfortable with, if not good at. If you're a millennial or a Gen Z, you don't. You text. That's how you start and really carry on every conversation because talking on the phone is a terrible and awful and horrible thing, so you text. Paul does it by letter. And that's really because not that he's afraid of confrontation, but he has no other choice. Paul is in Ephesus, and he is writing to the people in Corinth, and he needs to have a hard conversation with them. Corinth could be described as an active and metropolitan city. Corinth was a trade hub. Uh, that area was between two seas that kind of went in. They had two ports on either side, so there was a lot of trade going back and forth. And as a major trade hub, there was all sorts of commerce and business, uh, High society was there. There were temples and places of worship to Greek and Roman gods. And with that, there was religious or cult prostitution. So Corinth was a highly sexualized place full of sexual morality. And it was a place of ideas. And not only exchange of goods, but the exchange of ideas. There were professional speakers who would come through Corinth and rhetoricians. And they would charge services and fees for uh, their speaking. And they would speak on how to get ahead in life and how to uh, succeed and all those kinds of things. And listening to them would benefit you in life. So they would pay for their services. And that'll be a topic that Paul gets into and flavor some of the background of his writing. 
And in this worldly city, Paul planted a church. So along with Aquila and his wife Priscilla from Rome, they went together and they planted a church in the early 50s AD, almost 20 years after the ascension of Jesus. They traveled to Corinth and stayed there one and a half years preaching the gospel, gaining a following of followers of Jesus Christ. And after the church was established, Paul moved on to do other work and plant in other cities. He settled in Ephesus for several years. And while in Ephesus, Paul heard that things were not going all that well in Corinth. So he writes a letter and starts a hard conversation. In fact, this isn't the first letter he's written. We have reason to believe that there was a previous letter. So uh, 1 Corinthians is probably at least actually the second letter that Paul wrote to these people. But we do not have that initial letter. We have this one. And this letter addresses some of the difficult things that were going on in Corinth. Paul's objective really is to teach the church how to live like the Christians they are. To live up to the gospel that has saved them. To act like Christians. There are many areas that need to be addressed. Lawsuits among believers, idolatry and divisiveness, selfishness, arrogance and pride and sexual morality, and all sorts of things that Paul needs to get to and to correct gently with these believers. And so we wonder, how is Paul going to start that conversation, that difficult conversation? And what we find in these first nine verses is that Paul starts the conversation warmly, with a pastoral tone and love and affection for these people. The introduction to the letter is very standard. It has kind of the standard marks of not only Christian letters, but really all letters in the time. And an introduction of who's writing, a word about the addressee, who they're writing to, a greeting and a prayer or blessing to God or the gods. That was standard letter writing. And if you compare this to Paul's other letters, that has familiar words and phrases and themes. But within that standard introduction, there are notes that Paul hits and things that Paul mentions that are going to lay the groundwork for how he's going to correct them later on. They're distinctive subjects that Paul brings up. And he does so for a reason. So what I want to do this morning is focus on these distinctive notes that Paul hits in this greeting and ask what is Paul trying to get to in that? What is he trying to already teach them? Even as he introduces himself, even as he greets these people, he is teaching them. And there is a lesson that Paul wants them to learn right from the beginning. And that lesson is this, I'll sum it this way, that every gift of the church is given by God in Jesus Christ. You'll see why, as we go through the book, that lesson is important and why Paul front loads it right at the beginning. That every gift of the church is given by God in Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were a gifted church. They're full of gifted people. And they were not always using their gifts well. They had a tendency to believe that their giftedness made them something special, and they lacked Christian charity and love, which was the cause of so many of their problems. So Paul, right away, is going to reframe their thinking and lift them Godward and remind them that every gift of the church is given by God in Jesus Christ. 
That's our main point today. We'll split it into two sections. First, we'll cover verses 1 through 3 in Paul's greeting. And in his greeting, he has a lesson that the Lord calls and sanctifies his church. That's what they need to know right from the beginning as Paul greets them. The Lord calls and sanctifies his church. That as the church of God, they are supposed to be a different kind of people that God has called them to be a different kind of people, a sanctified people. Verse 1, the Lord calls and sanctifies his church. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first Paul introduces himself. He's writing around 55 AD, we believe. He's writing from Ephesus, and he introduces himself as an apostle. An apostle was one of those early church leaders who were set aside by God to lead the church in evangelism, to be witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ, and to plant and establish churches. Those were the apostles. And you have the twelve, who are like the capital A apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ who walked with him and knew him. There's the twelve, those were the apostles, and then a couple other apostles who were also given authority to establish churches in various places. And Paul calls himself an apostle. And in doing so, he recalls his own calling. He says, I am an apostle by calling. I have been called to do this. And when did that happen? A lot of you know, Acts 9. It was when Paul was converted and called to be an apostle. Acts 9, 1 through 6 says, But Saul, or Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And that is how Paul is called to the ministry. It is not something he was looking to. He, in fact, was running very far in the other direction, persecuting Christians, seeking them out, men and women to bind them up and imprison them, or worse. That was Paul's uh, mission at the time. And then he is suddenly and sovereignly called by God and turned the other direction. He has a calling. And what he is pointing out here in the introduction is that my calling is by the will of God. It wasn't me who did this. It was God's will. It wasn't my choice. It wasn't my design. It was only by the grace of God that I'm called to this apostolic ministry. There are people, when they they read this, and you might have thought this yourself as you're reading this, and you think, is Paul, like when he calls himself an apostle called by God, is that a power play on his part? Is he saying, I am the authority because God has placed me here, and you need to listen to me? Is Is that what he's doing? There are many commentators who think that, that that, that's what Paul's doing. He's establishing his authority. I'm called by God. I'm divinely chosen. So listen to what I have to say. I think Paul's actually doing something different. 
I think when appealing to the calling of God, he's saying, it's his will, not mine, and I was chosen by his grace to serve in this way. I think for Paul, this is actually a statement of humility. If it weren't for God's calling, I would have been doing something far worse. But by his grace, I'm here as an apostle to minister and serve. It was only by God's will that I write to you. I think that shapes all of Paul's writing. He has a certain confidence and humility. A humility to know that he is the worst of all sinners, the least deserving of this ministry, but a confidence to know God called him in a miraculous way. And he is bound to him so he will speak the truth and do so unapologetically while recognizing he doesn't deserve the place that he has. He says, I am called to this, along with our brother Sosthenes, who was with me, and maybe it was Sosthenes who was writing down what Paul said, we don't know. But Paul's not the only one called by God. Paul mentions his own calling and says, and you also are called in the same way that I was called in an undeserving way, so you also, church of God, i.e., you belong to him, not yourselves, you belong to God, and God called you church. He emphasizes this in a couple places. Verse 2 says, they are called to be saints. Paul reminds him, you are called to be saints. And then verse 9 repeats the same theme of calling. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. So what Paul is reminding them of is that your very existence as a church, your gathering together, your life as believers, did not start with you. It was not by your own initiative. God called you first. You are called out. And this is true for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Your belonging and your fellowship with the saints and with the church was not your idea. It is not something you hatched up one day by your own genius. It began with God who sovereignly said, I will call my people and I will call you. So there's no room for boasting or pride in your belonging to Christ. There's no room for looking down on those who do not belong to Jesus Christ because if it weren't for God's calling, you would be right there with them. God, by his grace, has called you. And if he's called you, he's called you for a reason. There's design behind it. There's intentionality. There's a purpose for his calling. And Paul tells us what that purpose is. You're called to be saints. This letter is written, as verse 2 says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, here that means to be set apart for a purpose. You are sanctified, you are set apart, made holy, in the same way that the lampstand and the utensils of worship and the bread and all that was sanctified in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. It was Maybe otherwise common stuff, but it was placed in a specific place for a purpose, for a reason, for the worship of God. It was sanctified and made holy for that purpose. And Paul's saying, so were you. We're sanctified and called. You might have sanctified things in your house. Things that are set aside for a specific purpose. You might have shoes that are sanctified shoes that you only wear on special occasions. 
for a specific purpose. Or maybe you have sanctified tools that are set aside for a certain job and not everybody can use that tool in your house because it is sanctified, set aside for a certain purpose. Or you might have a box of sanctified decorations in your basement or attic that you only pull out at Christmas time because they are for a specific purpose. They're sanctified. They're set apart for that. Paul's saying, you, as a church, you're sanctified. You're set apart, i.e., you're not supposed to look like the world around you. You are set apart for God, for a purpose of worshiping him. Notice he calls them saints. That's not by accident that Paul calls these people saints. We'll read that they are a messed up church full of all sorts of sin and greed and selfishness and immorality. And Paul will begin by saying, not you bunch of idiots. He doesn't begin beating them up. He says, you're saints. You're set apart by God. Because you are in Christ, you are set aside as holy and have his holiness. That is true for each and every believer in Jesus Christ. You are a saint. Sanctified. It's what theologians sometimes refer to as positional or definitive sanctification. It's you are set aside positionally, and you are in Christ and made holy. You're a saint. And church, this is how you must see yourself. Get comfortable, if you're in Christ, with the language of calling yourself a saint, a holy one. Don't fall into the horrible tradition of only reserving that language for the spiritually elite. Oh, they're a saint. Only the Mother Teresas of the world get that label. That is so contrary to the New Testament. Everyone who is in Jesus Christ who calls upon his name is a saint set apart for holiness. Paul wants the Corinthians to remember who they are in Christ, that you are a saint and you are saints together, not called by yourselves individually, but called to a community, to a fellowship. You are called to be saints together with all those who serve in every place, or also all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What Paul's saying is, we all have the same Lord. All those in every place who worship, who call upon the name of Jesus, they have the same Lord you do, and I do. In other words, what he's saying is there are a lot of fish in the sea of God's church and you ain't the only ones. So Paul is very subtly attacking any self-centeredness that they may have. He's reminding them that you're not the only church. You're not the only saints. He's both saying you are incredibly loved and special and you ain't all that special. That God is building and calling people in every place all over the world, whether that be Kansas or Kenya, in Corinth or Ephesus. God is calling people to fellowship. So I would say it this way, no Christian 
has ever, ever been called to have alone a personal relationship with Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus is not just personal. It is not just individual. It is collective. You are called to belong to a body, to a people, to have fellowship. We're called to be saints together. And in Jesus, we don't just find personal fulfillment. More important than that, we find a place to belong, a people to call family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Paul wants the Corinthians to know. This is going to be very important. If you're going to live together, recognize that's what you're called to. You're called not just to be you and Jesus. So it's not going to be just about your preferences or what you want or your opinions. You're going to have to share and be together in this because you're saints together. And then Paul finishes this greeting with the standard greeting that's in most of his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He emphasizes there in the greeting that we are called by God, we are sanctified by God as a church. God calls, God sanctifies. Then, in verses 4 through 9, we have a thanksgiving, a prayer of thanksgiving that Paul prays over his people. And here he wants to emphasize that all they have, they have by God's grace, those given to them, particularly their gifts and their salvation. So we learn in verses 4 through 9 that the Lord gifts and preserves his church. Just as he calls and sanctifies his church, the Lord gifts and preserves his church. The Lord gifts and preserves his church. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we asked in the beginning, how do we start hard conversations? Well, Paul starts this hard conversation by thanking God for them. I thank God for you, even if you give me a headache sometimes. I thank the Lord for you. And what's even more impressive, Paul is actually very specific in his thanks He thanks God that this church was gifted in the way it was. The gifts were the very things that were causing problems in the church. And we'll see that in verses or chapters 12 through 14. Their giftedness was leading to their self-centeredness and their disputes and all that. And that has to be addressed in a major way. And yet, Paul will still thank God for that. He'll thank God these people were gifted as they were, given gifts of speech and knowledge, gifts that related to teaching and instruction, speaking in tongues even, and prophesying and giving insight from the Lord, those kinds of higher gifts, they excelled in it. It caused all sorts of problems for them. And Paul will address that. And he's going to address it here first by reminding them who gave them the gift. As you're gifted, as you're talented, as you excel in your ability to serve and to minister to one another, remember who gave you that gift. Remember what a gift is by its very word, by the definition. It is something given to you. So Paul's going to lift their eyes upward and remind them who gave them the gifts that they have. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. Grace there meaning kind of empowerment to live the Christian life. Grace is empowerment to live the Christian life. And Paul says, the grace of God, this empowerment to live the Christian life that he gave you was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge then so that you're not lacking in any gift. They lacked nothing. They had all they could ask for, all they needed. It was all from God. Paul wants to reframe the way they think about their gifts, and we do this at home with our kids. Parents, you know this. You've done this a lot. If you have kids who are fighting over their toys, what do you do? Well, you remind them, who gave you the toy? Is this your toy? When you're screaming, mine, 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 is it yours? Or does it belong to your parents? We gave it to you. And we so generously and kindly let you exist in this toy room that you're playing in. And we reframe the way they're thinking about it so they're not thinking about it selfishly. And we remind them, if we're even good and holy in that moment, and all that we have and all that your parents have is on loan from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have a gospel conversation, right? About how God gives generously to his children. But you reframe the fight and reframe the way they're thinking about their gifts, their, their toys they're playing with. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here with these Corinthians and their giftedness. Hey, you who are so proud of all that you can do, proud of your ability to speak in tongues or the prophecy given to you, who gave it to you? Church, you who look down on others who don't have the same ministries and gifts that you do and you wish everybody were as good a teacher as you are or went to the prayer ministry like you did or served in children's church like you do and sacrificed their time, who gave you that ability to do all that? Paul reminded them that their areas of strength are all gifts of God. And then... Paul's going to redirect their thinking to what is more important, to what those gifts evidence. What do those gifts mean? The fact that you have these gifts of the Spirit, the fact that the Spirit has empowered you, mean that the Spirit is active and at work in your lives, and that's far more important. Verse 6 says that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So Paul subtly redirects their attention to, this is evidence the gospel's at work, the testimony of Jesus Christ is at work among you and has taken hold, and that's what you should be celebrating. Praise the Lord that the good news about Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and ascension to save the world from his sins, that message has taken hold in you. And your gifts just evidence that. So praise the Lord. And Paul's going to redirect their thinking is that not only have you been saved, but God is saving you and will save you as you wait the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's shifting their attention towards the future, and he's probably speaking more generously of them than they deserve, because who knows if they're actually really anticipating the end. They're just thinking about themselves right now. But Paul's kind of, you know, with the power of positive thinking, encouraged them to think towards the future. Thank the Lord. You're thinking towards the future and eagerly anticipating that day when Jesus Christ will save us all, when he appears and all stand before him. Paul says, you're eagerly anticipating it. I know you are. Maybe in his thinking, he's like, ah, maybe they're not. But I'm going to speak it into existence. You're anticipating 
the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. And that's what we should be thankful about. That's what we should rejoice in. I'm reminded of Jesus when his disciples come back from having been gifted to cast out demons and do all sorts of things. And he says in Luke 10.30, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you, not only that you've been gifted, but the gospel's at work among you, and Jesus Christ will save you and make you blameless in the end. In the end, you'll be presented as holy. You messy Corinthians, sinful people, in the end, will be presented blameless in the day of judgment, perfected in Christ. And how can they know that they'll reach that day? How can they know that not only the Lord has saved them, that the Lord is saving them, but the Lord will save them? How can they trust in that? And Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. Consider that. Who will sustain them? Who will keep them in Christ? Whose work is that to do? Who is the one who is ultimately responsible and able to keep and sustain these wayward saints and keep them in the faith until the day they meet Jesus Christ. Who can do that? Paul says, Jesus Christ will do that. He will sustain you to the end. That is full-orbed good news. Not only God did save you, not only God will save you, he is saving you now. He is preserving you now. He is holding on to you now because Jesus is the good shepherd and he tends to his flock and he doesn't lose sheep. He is preserving you. It's what theologians call the perseverance of the saints, that those who are called to be saints will stay saints. That anybody who has been called by God and sanctified in him will remain so until the end and be presented blameless. That there is no break in that chain. Or as Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's what Paul says in the glorious verse, you all should memorize this, Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning, if the Lord, before the foundation of the world, predestines and calls you, then he will justify you and he will glorify you. Meaning, you will be resurrected to eternal life with him at the end, presented blameless. There's no break in that. Whoever God predestines, he calls. Whoever he calls, he justifies. Whoever he justifies, he glorifies. Essentially, God will preserve and sustain his church. From beginning to end, it is God's work keeping you. It is God who sanctifies and sustains until the end. There's a, I'm sure I've mentioned it in a sermon before, I can't remember, but there's a great video I love online, and it's of a guy walking up to an escalator, 
and he, as soon as he gets on the escalator, falls and trips, and he's tumbling down while the escalator's carrying him up, and he can't get to his feet, and then somebody labeled underneath, sanctification. And that's what it is. We stumble, we fall, and yet we're carried upward. And that'll be true for these Corinthians. They'll stumble, they'll stumble, they'll fall, they'll be messy, but they'll be carried upward because God preserves and sustains his church. I was thinking about this. That in my house, there are certain things my kids don't worry about. Not once before bed has any of my kids ever said to me, I'm really worried about the dishes being done. Or I'm really anxious because the, the downstairs is a mess and there's toys everywhere. And none of them have ever said, oh, I'm worried about those bills, the electricity hasn't been paid. And why? Because it's not ultimately their responsibility. It's not their work to do. Now, they will participate in it. So, We'll give them chores and say, hey, you're going to help out with the dishes. And you're going to help clean up. And you're going to help keep this house. But ultimately, it's not their work to do. So, they are not anxious about it. They don't fret about it. There's no anxiety about any of those things because it's not their role. That is also true of your sanctification and salvation in Jesus Christ. It is not your work to do. You are not able to. You can try all you want, but you cannot present yourself blameless. You don't have the ability. That doesn't mean you aren't involved in it. God will give you work to do. He'll say, come on. We're going to do this work together. But ultimately, your salvation, your sanctification, your glorification in the end, that is the Lord's work to do. So you don't need to fret about it. And you don't need to be anxious about it. Because you have no more ability to save yourself than my daughter does to pay our bills. It is God's work in you. And that is Paul's point all throughout this introduction. Corinthians, everything you have is a gift of the Lord. It is God's work in you. Notice the passive language even all throughout. Who's doing the work? The Corinthians or God? The saints are sanctified. They are called by God. They are given grace by God. They are enriched and gifted by God. They are sustained by God. The whole course of salvation is the Lord's work. What are the Corinthians to do? What's their responsibility? You call upon the name and you wait. Eagerly anticipating the day of Jesus Christ. And you can trust God to be good because he's a faithful father. That's how Paul ends in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in the end, that's who it's all about. It's all about Jesus Christ. Not Paul, not the Corinthians. 
Notice we have an introduction here. It's a, it's a letter from Paul to the Corinthians. And who's the main subject? Jesus Christ. Ten times in nine verses he's named. Paul's communicating something. This is about Jesus. Your life is about Jesus. And it's he who gave you all that you have. Every gift of the church is given by God in Jesus Christ. No room for boasting. No room for selfishness. But all praise and honor to God who saves us. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God and our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, triune God, for the salvation we have in you, in Jesus Christ, through your Spirit, that we have been called to be saints and called to be uh, sanctified for a purpose of worshiping and praise. Lord, I pray you would teach us through this book how to live together. How to use our gifts together. How to serve and love one another in the midst of sin, in the midst of division, in the midst of potential fighting and tension. And all the things that come up when we live as a church together teach us that it all goes back to who we are in Jesus Christ. And remind us of your grace, your generosity, and your gifts given to us. And Lord, may we glorify your name. Amen.